This is episode 163. This is a very special episode, and it is an episode with a different format than our usual podcast episode. And the difference in the format is that today you are going to hear not from one, but from five experts in their fields. And the reason for that is that the topic we're dealing uh, with today is incredibly complex. The topic is the proposal, or maybe deliberation is a better word, of European Commission on lowering the protection status of wolves in the EU. And obviously this is a very hot topic, and I felt like presenting only one view in no way will give the full objective picture of the situation. And so today you will hear from Professor Erika von Essen, who is a social scientist or social anthropologist even, Professor John Linnell, wildlife biologist, like in my head, one of the foremost specialists in large carnivores and coexistence with large carnivores. Um, John was already our guest in episode 115. Ariel Bruner, the head of EU policy at BirdLife International. Ariel is a big advocate of nature restoration law, and he was also our guest in episode 134. Dr. David Scallon, the Secretary General of the European Federation for Hunting and Conservation, FACE. David was also a number of times on our podcast, most recently on episode 154. Mr. Bruno Leconte, who is a goat breeder from France. And uh, at this point, big shout out to Denis Pla, who is a hunting journalist and blogger, who not only put me in touch with Bruno, but also was an interpreter from English to French and back. Um, so when I'm talking with Bruno, you will hear his voice. And final shout outs to a friend of the podcast, Alex Simmons, who also was our guest on episode 142 most recently, who shared with us a photo of the wolf for the cover or hero image for this podcast. Alec is known for his photographic travels. And from one of those travels, he brought a photo of the wolf and he shared that with us. So that's the wolf you see on the cover. Now, before we go any further, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any organization. The participants are expressing their personal opinions and perspectives. Finally, it is quite long episode, it's over an hour, but as you can imagine, I recorded way more material that didn't make cut to this program. If you are interested in listening to the full interviews I recorded, in a somehow traditional format of this podcast, please register your interest. The link is in the description of the show. Put it at your email address there. So click the link, put your email address there. And once those interviews are out, I will notify you. Now, those interviews are not going to be public. They are going to be only available to registered people, exclusive content, if you like. So if you would like to hear them, once again, go to the description of this show there is a link in there, click on the link, put your email address, and that way you will be on the list and I will notify you once those interviews are available. 
And finally, finally, in preparation to this episode, I had a lot of conversations, not only with people who are on this podcast, but also with a lot of scientists and farmers uh, who were happy to speak with me, but they didn't want to be named and didn't want to be on the record. Um, and so I will share some of that uh, knowledge that I acquired by these conversations towards the end of the podcast. Um, but to hear that, you will need to listen till the end of the podcast, which I'm sure you will if you're interested in this subject. All right, let's get on with it. There is around 20,000 wolves in Europe, and they are coming back to regions where they were absent for hundreds of years. Tensions due to human-wildlife conflict are on the rise. And their numbers are estimated to have grown by 25% in the last decade. European Commission is deliberating lowering protection status of wolves. The announcement came almost exactly a year after a wolf killed a pony belonging to the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. It happened early last September at her family farm in northern Germany. President von der Leyen said, The concentration of wolf packs in some European regions has become a real danger for livestock and potentially also for humans. I urge local and national authorities to take action where necessary. Indeed, the current EU legislation already enables them to do so. And, subsequently, the European Commission invited, quote, local communities, scientists, and all interested parties, end quote, to submit the latest data in order to review the conservation status of wolves. The Commission will decide on a proposal to modify, where appropriate, the status of protection of the wolf within the EU and to update the legal framework to introduce, where necessary, further flexibility. All right, folks, so this is the story so far, and this is where we're beginning this podcast. And I think it's only fair to start with trying to understand what exactly is being proposed. So I asked that question in one of the foremost specialists in coexistence with large carnivores, a wildlife biologist, Professor John Linnell. Let's talk about the, the proposal um, that is on the table in the European Union. In, in the, the bones of it is basically downlisting wolves from Annex 4 to Annex 5, which will facilitate certain management methods, namely lethal management, removal of, of uh, individuals, as I understand that. That will still require some wolf population to grow because that is still protected status. The way it has come across in the media and perhaps even in the press release from the Commission, really overlooks an awful lot of the complexity in the issue. So I guess I have to maybe kind of walk you through some of the existing situations. So starting there, at the moment, quite a few countries already have wolves on Annex 5. And maybe just kind of for the point of listeners, it might just be important to point out what the difference is, right? That the... Habitat Directive has these two appendixes, Annex 4 and Annex 5. Um, both of them have the same 
requirement of outcome that you have to achieve favorable conservation status. So whatever Annex Wolf is, is listed on, the countries have the same obligation for the distribution and the number of wolves. They have to be kept at favorable conservation status. So nothing changes with respect to the goals of conservation. It may not even change the number of wolves actually on the ground. But what it does change is the situations in which you are allowed to kill wolves. But if you are on Annex 4, you are strictly protected. And that means that killing a wolf can only be met under certain situations, such as kind of um, damage control of, um, of matters of overriding public interest and so on. So you have to justify explicitly each wolf which is killed. On Annex 5, you don't have to make that justification. Right, You can kill wolves for any reason at all, but you still have to reach the same conservation goal. So the difference is not in the goals, but it's in the, the actions that you're allowed to do to wolves and especially the justifications that you do to them. So in theory, you cannot really operate, for example, a normal hunting system under Annex 4. Right? You can have hunters kill wolves in certain situations but you cannot just say hunt them because you want to hunt them. If you move on to Annex 5, then you could do that. You can say there's no other justification than the fact that maybe some segments of society, some segments of the hunter community want to do it in the way that you would do it for other game species. So that is the key uh, difference. Now, at this moment in time, quite a few countries have wolves already on Annex 5. Or in some parts of countries. Like, so in the Baltic states, in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, Poland, for example, wolves have always been on Annex 5 ever since they came into the EU. And then in, say, the northern part of Finland, the um, southern part of Spain, wolves also on Annex, sorry, and northern Spain. So northern Spain, northern Finland, wolves also on Annex 5 and have been the whole time. In some of these countries, they have used this as a way of um, managing a normal hunting system. But for example, in Poland, even though they have been on Annex 5, wolves have kind of remained strictly protected because society has decided that they don't kind of want to hunt. But just because you can do it doesn't mean you actually have to do it. In contrast, if you look at the countries which have wolves on Annex 4, where they are strictly protected, you see, again, every range of kind of possible outcome that in some countries they have been really kind of restrictive on how many wolves are killed. Like Italy, um, Germany would kind of come across as examples of countries where they said, okay, we really will enforce the strict protection really strictly and we will really only allow a few wolves to be killed under very, very strict um, circumstances. But then in contrast, you have France where wolves are strictly protected. But for the last kind of years, they have been killing oh, over 15% of the wolves in France every year. So the annex that you're on doesn't necessarily affect the number of wolves to die. What it does affect is the argumentation that you do or do not have to use to actually allow wolves um, to be killed. Now let's listen to one of the most important voices in this debate, at least in my mind, which is the voice of a farmer, because these are people who are the most and most directly affected by wolves. So our guest is Bruno Lacomte, 
who is a goat breeder in France. And as I mentioned on the top of the show, Denis Pla, hunting journalist and blogger, is providing interpretation from English to French and from French to English. So I started by asking Bruno about the impact of wolves on farming activity. The wolves has a very big impact on the uh, breeding activity in France because officially last year 12,500 animals were officially uh, recorded as attacked and killed by the wolf. But we consider that almost one-third of this figure can be added because some of the animals are not found back and they are not officially in the stats. But the figures are not enough uh, to have a, an overall a complete and exhaustive view of the impact of the wolves. Because there is, of course, economic impact for the breeders and the farmers who lose uh, some of their animals, but you have also the stress for the farmers because they are usually and very often afraid of possible attacks. Then you have the time that they spent in additional work that that didn't have before: protection fences and uh, raising dogs, specialized dogs to protect the animals. And there is also an additional point that if the uh, the cow or uh, the sheep is not really killed, there is a stress for the animals also that can create abortions and can also stop the, uh, the milk production. So this is an additional economical loss for the breeder. Do you see, like in the recent years, the increase of wolves attack and the conflict with, with wolves or is it uh, roughly on the same level as it was you know in the last decade or whatever time we you know what the answer is yes there is an increase which is linked to the, the increase of wolves number of wolves in france uh, so uh, there is obviously an increase in the attacks on the animals in france almost Surely the government recognizes the difficulty wolves on the landscape are causing for farmers. So are there any programs available to mitigate? Are they working? Are they sufficient? And, you know, if, if not, what could be done to make them sufficient? Yes, the government and the state helps the farmers protect in case of attacks. The protections are free, fences, protection dogs, and helps to uh, employ some additional shepherds. And in case of attacks, despite these protection means, uh, we have the possibility in France to shoot at the walls. But it, it is extremely graduate, uh, because first of all, we have to frighten the wolf with some shots, not on him, but close to him. And if, despite these uh, warning shots, the wolf still stays in the area and still attacks, then we can shot at the wolf and kill it. Theoretically, it's extremely efficient, but theoretically only because seeing the system from outside the farmer's life, everything seems to be perfect. Which is not working as it should, because first of all, the wolf is an intelligent animal and easily adapts 
himself to the protection needs, fences, protection dogs, and, and, and in even the shots. The killing of wolves is limited to uh, 19% of the estimated population of wolves in France. The population of wolves can increase every year of 30%. If we are only allowed to kill 19% of this estimated population, we have an increased number of wolves in the country. Most of the farmers and breeders in France would like to be allowed to shoot at the wolves themselves because they are not allowed at the moment. Do you welcome the European Union's review of protection status of wolves? Or do you feel like some other measures would be more adequate to address those issues? Yes, of course. It's very important to change the status and the president of the European Commission wish to change it. But Bruno doesn't think that it might happen because this wish will have to face the opposition of uh, environmental and ecological parties and movements and groups that are in favor of the wolf and the increased presence of the wolf in continent. Concerning the European Union and the European Commission, we have to be aware that the European Union wants to have 10% of each country rewilded in terms of strong protection. And wolf is a part of this policy. Uh, so that's not a good sign for the farmers. This uh, policy is also linked to the compensation of carbon pollution. Most of the farmers understand that wolves and bears also are part of a system that pushes the farmers in some low-level areas which are not good for rewilding. So wolves and bears are tools to eliminate and to push away the farmers in bad areas which are not possible to be used for rewilding. But the system, in fact, doesn't completely help the farmers because they want step by step to kill the possibility for them to have an income in, in of their activities in this area. So, uh, of course, the state and the European Union cannot force the farmers out, as it is done by some organizations in India, in Africa. But if they slowly die because of the low income, they will stop. And they, uh, the areas liberated will be given to rewilding. Why would, why would government be willing to do that? I mean, farming is very important for every, for every country. So what is the motivation, in your opinion, to be so openly against farmers? I mean, like rewilding doesn't produce food and it's not giving any economic income uh, to the country. So why? En fait, c'est simple. The answer is that uh, in some areas, in France, for example, we have high agricultural production rate. This will be saved. But the low-level areas in terms of production rate will be sacrificed uh, to the rewilding because they are not of big use for, for a country. 
Second part of the answer is that France, but some other European countries, must decrease the number of uh, animals, farm animals, uh, because of pollution, so-called pollution produced by the animals. So, uh, if we uh, once again go to the median uh, production uh, rate uh, areas, it, it won't affect or too much affect the agricultural production of the country. Finally, rewilding can also, can also earn money for a government because you have the carbon compensation, the ecological compensation, and the touristic activities that might be generated in rewilded areas. I don't know about you, but I heard the voice of a man who is really concerned about his livelihood and about his future, and about the future of livelihoods of people like him. And even if you disagree, and you want to go like, oh, but, 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 the truth is that voices like Bruno's can't be ignored, and they're playing a vital role in establishing nature restoration policy. And we're going to hear again from Bruno, as well as John, later in the podcast. But now, let's talk about politics. Obviously, politics are heavily involved in that process, and so let's go to Brussels, to the epicenter of that review, and let's talk with nature restoration and biodiversity advocate Ariel Brunner, who is the head of the EU policy at the environmental NGO BirdLife International. What is his view on the proposal of lowering the protection status of wolves? What we have uh, is a combination, as always, of uh, real problems and political manipulation. Now... The real problems are that uh, wolves are making a big comeback in Europe. Fortunately, it's a huge conservation success and it's extremely good ecologically. And it's good also for people. But it does mean that people who have not been used to wolves, sometimes for centuries, are coming into contact with an animal that can be you know, an uncomfortable neighbor. That's the real issue. Uh, then there is the political manipulation. The political manipulation is that, in particular, the European Popular Party, under the, the leadership of uh, Mr. Weber, um, has picked up the war on nature as a hot button uh, for the next European election campaign because they think that it's good material for US-style culture wars. That's why... They have uh, led a massive campaign, uh, by the way, based on lies and, and, and fairly disgusting manipulations uh, against the nature restoration law. And now they've identified the attack on wolves as another way of steering the same pot uh, again. Unfortunately, it looks like President uh, of the Commission von der Leyen, who is up for election for renomination and needs the support of her own party, which has been flagging, it really looks like she's uh, basically offering a dead wolf to Mr. Weber as one of the goodies to get, uh, get him behind her uh, renomination. So you think this is more, more political and, and fight for votes than... Uh, addressing the real problems. Absolutely. Also because, I mean, if you want to talk about solutions, uh, there has been a huge amount of work that the European Commission has been doing and funding 
over the last few years about real solutions, anything from uh, fences to guard dogs to compensation schemes uh, to information, education, and so on. And that's the realm of solutions. Uh, lowering the protection status of wolves does really nothing to solve those uh, problems. We know that when you start shooting wolves, you are as likely to make problems worse than better. But you're acknowledging there is an existing conflict with wolves and that there are there, there need for some measures to, to mitigate that because of the number of wolves increased in, in the EU. Wolves are predators, which means that uh, where you have wolves, you would have you will have issues with attacks on livestock and you will have uh, problems with uh, attacks on pets. You have way, way, way bigger problems uh, of exactly the same nature with dogs. And yet nobody proposes to reduce the dog population. You try to educate people to keep them on or on a leash. Cars uh, do horrible damage and actually kill a lot of people. You know, you have problems and you need to try and solve the problems in a way that actually solve the problems and that it's proportional to the size of the problem. Now, in most places where this has been studied, for example, in the case of livestock damage, uh, the livestock loss to wolves is usually in the few percentage point of the overall normal losses of livestock. So it's not like wolves cripple the livestock sector. It is a very minor problem. Now, the fact that it's a very minor problem overall doesn't mean that it's not a big problem for the individual shepherd, and that's where you need to you know, help people deal with it. Because, of course, if a shepherd loses uh, a part of his flock to a wolf, he is going to be very upset about it, just like Mrs. von der Leyen was apparently extremely upset when she lost her pony to a wolf. But we need to keep things in proportion. If uh, while you walk your dog, the neighbor's dog attacks it and kills it, it's an absolutely horrible experience for you when you are going to be very, very angry with the neighbor. You don't build public policies on that basis. Do you think that the existing measures to compensate and deal with conflict with wolves are sufficient in the EU at the moment? Or do you think that because the wolves are increasing in numbers, there need to be some, you know, beef up in, in these areas? So the EU legislation is perfectly up to the task. And by the way, the commission has already wasted four years, like less than five years ago, on a giant fitness check of the Birds and Habitats Directive. We spent a huge amount of time and money to evaluate whether the legislation was uh, fit for purpose, and the conclusion was that it was, I find it unacceptable that, you know, you ask the question, you spend public money on finding the answer, and then you just ask the question again. Now, the problem is that uh, actually dealing with, uh, with the issue is not in the hands of the EU, it's in the hand of national and local authorities. And there, some people are doing much better job than other people, and there is a lot that can be improved. We have countries where, where farmers are being compensated for damage and countries where they are not being compensated for uh, damage. We have regions where compensations arrive on time and places where it takes forever for the farmer to be compensated. Um, 
But we have good practice. We have good practice all around Europe. And what we should is take the good practice and implement it everywhere rather than try to change the basic EU legislation, which would not actually change much uh, on the ground. Going back to, uh, you know, the von der Leyen's ponies example, uh, we have a really, really good uh, project in uh, Belgium where uh, NGOs are helping uh, owners uh, build wolf proof fences around their uh, their paddocks and and properties to protect um you know small flocks or pets had von der Leyen's villa had one of those fences in place well dolly would still be alive today so there are things we can do we should just get on and do them in any case what i can say is that i find it kind of depressing that Ms. van der Leyen finds even time to deal with the wolf issue given what is going on on her continent uh we have a whole region of greece underwater at the moment and the place has ended up underwater while the hills were still burning if we are talking about what threatens farmers in Europe and what threatens human lives in Europe and the European economy, well, there's, there's a raging monster out there and it's called climate change and ecological breakdown. And that's what we need to deal with. One organization that was vocal about the need for the nature restoration law is the European Federation for Hunting and Conservation. Hunters are occupying the middle ground, at least in my mind, as on one hand they want biodiverse ecosystems and have many examples of hunter-led conservation projects that turned out to be a major success stories. Check that out if you disagree, you might be surprised. And on the other hand, they are aware of problems, as they're close to farming community as well as they can be affected by large carnivores themselves. So I turned to Dr. David Scallon, the Secretary General of the European Federation of Hunting and Conservation. I asked him what does he think about the review of wolf conservation status and ultimately downlisting the species. So we have these header headlines, a new wolf hunt, von der Leyen declares war on wolf, wolf von der Leyen offers a dead wolf to get elected in European elections, etc. etc. But people who follow um, those, those issues for some time, like I do, I know that FACE was campaigning for accurate assessment of large carnivore populations based on sustainability, or based on suitable criteria for at least three years, if memory serves me well, probably longer. So what is European hunters and FACE's position on this proposal to review conservation protection status of wolves? Well, let's look at the population of wolves that has been doing um, very well. And this goes to a kind of a core request that that we have to try to improve the situation and maybe decrease some of the of the tension, which is classically between, let's say, you can call it an urban-rural divide or, or where you have protection NGOs against, um, I would say, at the forefront, you have the livestock farming community um, and we've been active as well as Europe's hunting community. Um, so we have an increase of about 9,000 wolves in the last 10 years. We have uh, quite a large population of wolves today, I think 21,000 wolves in geographic Europe. I think we're not used to having a wildlife recovery at this scale. Um, it's interesting that as the population of wolves has increased, uh, the debate, the polarization, the tension, 
and also the ability to have, um, from our perspective, um, some management in line with the directive, that flexibility has decreased. So, I mean, let's say from, from the outset, uh, our position is we support the conservation of the wolf, um, but we can have this with some regulation. The challenge is when it's in Annex 4, the derogation system is not working, and it's mainly resulting in a huge amount of legal action in court action. Um, we have the same conservation legal requirement in Annex 5. So member states have to maintain, uh, achieve and maintain favorable conservation status. Uh, and this is really important, and I don't think there's a really good understanding around this in the debate about looking at the level of protection of the wolf within the Habitats Directive. And in some cases, the debate gets a little bit out of hand. So we're not calling to revise the directive. We're just calling to fully implement the directive because Article 19 has a procedure to amend the annexes. The commission hasn't acted on this yet. And this is what's interesting from the President uh, Ursula von der Leyen's statement, you know, gathering scientific information to review the protection uh, status with, within the directive. Where have things broken down? Um, I think we can look at uh, a number of examples. And I, I mentioned our position on this because nothing is really black and white and we have a really good relationship with large carnivores in certain contexts. And then you get a real challenges with large carnivores in other uh, legal, socio-political contexts. So, I mean, you had a really good system in, in a number of countries in Slovakia. It was working well, the recovery of the wolf with some management. That changed when a green minister stepped in and changed things. In Romania, we also had a system that was working very well with the wolf, with other large carnivores. Very little, um, let's say, conflict was, was was really low, and that changed with, with the Green Minister. Um, Spain, the north of Spain, there was a wolf management, and this was in Annex 5, so protection, not strict protection, and that changed with the more ideological political debate. And this is national politics, but you also have Brussels politics. You had the case in Latvia with the Latvian links, Annex 4. It was previously an example of best practice. Um, and this was never about population management of the links, but they had a very small, limited hunt to improve social acceptance. And the Commission acknowledged this as being a really nice example in the previous guidance document on strict species protection. Now they've questioned Latvia um, about the ability to continue this under the directive, under the case law, and under their interpretation. Uh, and Latvia responded and stopped it. Sweden is trying. They have a concentration of wolves in the middle of Sweden. The north, it's difficult with the Sami community. And this is about a high concentration in the middle of Sweden. The commission is really watching them. It has an infringement open the last 10 years. Finland is the same combination of national politics and Brussels watching them carefully because of Annex 4. Uh, and every derogation is ending up in a national court case. So this is this is really uh, difficult. You have populations in Annex 4 that are in favorable status that could be moved to Annex 5. And as I said, you still have that same level uh, of protection. One of the big challenges as well is when you look at the um, how we are assessing the status of wolves in Europe. So the IUCN Large Carnivore Initiative for Europe, um, they say we have nine populations recent scientific papers as you could probably look at eight populations um least concern uh we see it in 
an increase in population size and population range. Uh, when you look at the reporting through the biogeographical um, region assessments under the Habitats Directive, this is where things get more complicated. And it's frustrating for many rural stakeholders that we often hear from the Commission's perspective, we have more assessments and unfavorable status now than we had in the previous assessment under the Habitats Directive. And that's even instead of looking at the wolf as how it should be looked uh, in, in terms of its connectivity, and let's say eight or nine populations that we have, we're moving towards more and more connectivity and, and, and one European population in the future. And this way of chopping wolves up into very small units is also unhelpful. And it's, it's, it's frustrating. So I think we need a more pragmatic and a more sensible approach to how we assess wolves. Um, and there's a clear message, wolves are doing well in Europe. But over that time, the problems and the ability uh, and, and the, the, let's, let's say the, the ability for, for management and the flexibility that everyone keeps, keeps talking about has really disappeared. And this has put us in, in a level of tension now. And that's what we're asking for from the perspective of the, of the um, hunting community. We want to revise the protection status of certain wolf populations. We don't need to revise the Habitats Directive. We just need to use Article 19 of the Habitats Directive. This can enable the movement of certain large carnivore populations. Um, so it's about fully implementing the directive. As I said, we need a new way to assess the conservation status of the wolf in Europe. We need to stop splitting the wolf up into small population units. This 45 assessments based on biogeographical regions isn't appropriate for the biology, ecology, and the transboundary nature of the wolves. I think the IUCN makes, makes one European assessment least concern and identifies nine populations. This is a this is a better way to go. We really need to clearly communicate the status of wolves in Europe and that they're doing well. So to explore that further, I turned once again to Professor John Linnell and asked him questions about wolf population or populations across the European continent. What about the argument that only three uh, populations are sort of like out of the danger zone in air quotes? All the others are near threatened or vulnerable. And what about the argument that the wolf is largely still missing from its former range? And obviously, I, I personally also have a problem like, what is former range? Because depending where you anchor that in time, you can say, like, oh, it's doing much better than its former range, or somewhere, you know, hundreds of years or thousands of years. So it's, it's, you know, it's like, oh, I had to break it out to you. It, it will always going to be missing from its former range because we have cities now. Well, the former range issue is very difficult to operationalize. You know, like you say, it depends entirely on what point of time, right? No, can do we take the ice age? Do we take, you know, the historical era? It, it, it's very difficult in a, in a European context. Like it makes more sense maybe in North America, Australia, where you can you know use say the um, arrival of Europeans as like a point in time when there was a dramatic change in everything. But in Europe, we don't have these sort of kind of cutoff points. So like change has been constant, you know, um, for tens of thousands of years. So it is very hard to actually use that as a, a benchmark. You know, you can talk about potential. But in the case of wolves, virtually everything is kind of potential. There's very few places in Europe, apart from maybe the, the really urban areas, which are, are, are not suitable. And in some cases, it wouldn't even surprise me if they're able to kind of, kind of 
find a place on the edge of urban areas too if we gave under a chance. So that is a very difficult concept to operationalize. You know, we can obviously do some things. We can pick certain points in time, you know, arbitrarily. Um, but there's no, there's very few objective kind of cutoffs in there which stand out as saying, okay, this is the way to interpret that. When it comes to the status of populations, the status depends totally on the scale of assessment, right? So if you are assessing, say, national um, populations, or, or the parts of our populations that fall into one nation's borders, then certainly there are some which are quite small. But if you start looking at the populations as a whole, then um, most of them are becoming quite large. So there's there's nothing there which is in any imminent danger of extinction, right? Especially if you start viewing it as like a kind of a European metapopulation. And we're seeing more and more today, right, the rules are mixing. Like we're getting combinations of rules which haven't happened for kind of centuries. You, know, you have rules, say, from the Carpathians meeting rules coming from Italy. You know, you have um, rules from the Baltics and the, the European lowlands, which are bumping into rules heading up from Italy. So that we're getting these mixtures which have not happened for centuries and centuries. So I don't think anything is any short-term or immediate danger of extinction. Some of them certainly may be kind of, kind of vulnerable and that they may be under threat. But you have to look at what those threats are, right? It may not be a numbers game behind that threat, but it may be issues like habitat, it may be uh, lack of monitoring or conflict levels. So there's many reasons behind threat. But certainly we do have some, like these Scandinavian populations are very small, you know, and they are isolated and they are quite inbred. So, so certainly there you do have some local issues. But those local issues, again, may not be solved mainly by having more numbers. It's it's much more important to get the connectivity back. So the issue of threat is a very complicated issue, and it's not always simply a numbers game. I think the main thing here then is to ask ourselves, why is this such a strong pressure to move rules from Annex 4 to Annex 5? Now, why are certain stakeholders and lobby groups focusing on this? And... I would say there's um, multiple reasons behind that. Kind of, one point would probably come from kind of many scientists who would look at the habitat directive and the fact that we have different appendixes. And would say, well, why do we have these? Why do we have an Alex 4 and an Alex 5? Why do we have some populations of species that are strictly protected and others which are only, you know, kind of protected? And like from a logical kind of point of view, you would say, well, this means that depending on the conservation status of the species, there's a different urgency and they need different kind of conservation measures. So if you have kind of populations who are highly endangered, well, obviously they need different kind of management systems than those which are not. And it's like, well, I, as sort of conservationists, we're very familiar with the IUCN red listing, where you know every three, four, five, six, seven years, species status is kind of reviewed. That we look at the best scientific data on population size and density and trend and conflicts, and people make a, a constant kind of revision of their threat status. And if things are going well, 
then species become kind of, kind of downlisted. They move from, say, critically endangered to endangered, or from endangered to vulnerable. And this is a way of marking the success in conservation. In the other way, if species are declining, they think, okay, we need to actually put more attention on the species. We need to increase the level of, kind of protection. And then you would move upwards, say from you know, kind of near threatened to vulnerable to endangered to critically endangered. So this is a way of using the threat status as a dynamic way of focusing the amount of conservation intervention or attention the species needs, right? But the main key point here is that this kind of, kind of red listing is dynamic. Even the um, American Endangered Species Act is kind of dynamic, right? With species moving up and down as they become threatened or not. Like the bald eagle got kind of downlisted, the wolf has been downlisted in some places. And logically speaking, being downlisted should be viewed as a mark of conservation success or failure if you're being uplisted. What we see with the Habitat Directive is the lists are totally static, right? Things do not move up or down. And a large part of this is simply because of the process that was kind of created, right? For the wolves to be downlisted requires a unanimous decision by all the heads of states of all EU countries. So 27 heads of state in the European Council have to agree to downlist it. Right. And, you know, to uplist um, only requires a majority, but downlist requires a kind of unanimous decision. So even though the Habitat Directive on paper has a mechanism, because of its nature, it's basically never used. And I, I would say this exposes one of the greatest weaknesses in the Habitat Directive is that it has not got a mechanism for a knowledge, kind of science-based, periodic reassessment of species status, and then using the annexes as a way of reflecting improvements or declines in wildlife um, status. So this, I think, is one of the, the kind of generic issues that most kind of scientists would say is a weakness in the directive, irrespective of we're talking about wolves or butterflies, right? Um, moving on to maybe why some of the stakeholders are advocating so strongly for change in status. I think it's partially a frustration because of the symbolism of strict protection, right? And I guess this is kind of coming mainly from the, the hunting community, right? No, is that they view the strict protection as a source of conflict in itself. You know, irrespective of what the wolf actually does, there's somehow this symbolic special status that the wolf has compared to, say, other wildlife is viewed as a conflicting um, issue, largely maybe a symbolic issue, but still a very conflicting issue um, compared to maybe a system where the wolves would fall into a category with other wildlife species. So I think most of the conflict here is simply coming from the symbolism of this. It may not, it may or may not lead to more wolves being killed or the wolves being killed for, for, for kind of different reasons. But 
we certainly have to acknowledge that the inflexibility and the low adaptability of the system is perceived by some stakeholders as a source of conflict. So we waded in straight into social science now from totally biology. And I would say that probably 95% of the rules management issue is a social science issue, right? Now, this is dealing with perceptions, it's dealing with symbolism, it's dealing with politics, it's dealing with culture, dealing with culture wars. You know, it's dealing with a lot of things which really have very little to do with the wolf itself. And so we inevitably arrived at the social science aspect of the issue. So I was delighted at the opportunity to talk about this side of coexistence with wolves with Erika von Essen, a professor of environmental communication. People might have been more neutral toward the wolf. If you strip the wolf of everything in terms of management and conflict and, you know, the various kind of, yeah, the various issues that surround it, like just looking at the animal itself, uh, I found at least in my, across my respondents, they don't actually eat the wolf per se. Uh, but when you bundle everything about the conflict and the way that they feel they're treated in this situation, uh, they're being kind of marginalized by by dominant voices and so forth, then I think it breeds a real hostility that also comes to affect how you feel about the wolf, uh, even though that's not how you started it. It becomes a symbol of everything that's frustrating to you, including you know broader countryside struggles about depopulation and, and scaling down of industries and so forth. So would it be fair to say that this is really like a human-human conflict uh, and all the social conflict that goes in and, and the wolf gets kind of entangled into that and becomes that symbol of the problem? Yeah, you hear that a lot, definitely in my research. Like, we need to manage people and it's a people-people con uh, conflict. And I agree to an extent, but I think still... There is this materiality in this conflict that does start from somewhere, a problematic species, if you will, that has certain species-specific characteristics that just lends itself to a problematic situation. So when I read these these new, new texts that talk about, oh, the wolf conflict has nothing to do with the wolf, I think that's also going a bit too far. Like people just construct their ideas on on, on various issues in society onto the wolf. No, it's, it's actually about the wolf as well and the way that it predates and and so forth yeah wolf does wolves wolf things wolf's gonna wolf right yeah wolf gonna, exactly wolf gonna wolf um so your your mention um something that again i heard a lot and this is this feeling of powerlessness uh and you you often hear like oh they're they right there's always the, those mysterious they they value wolf more than us meaning yeah. you know rural <laughs> people farmers or whoever that is and when in one of the previous episodes where I was talking about rewilding of the Pyrenees, where there's a conflict with a bear, that was one of the things that was, you know, not even, uh, it was coming from people affected, but something I actually felt by, you know, while reading about it is that never mind the bear and never mind the fact that it, you know, takes a sheep or something, but we cannot do anything about it. Like he, is, is is that something that you can confirm? Is that something that comes up with your research as well? Um, that you can almost offer a wolf or a bear or, or, or an animal as a token of like, 
here you go, you can kill that one, and that kind of makes things, you know, smooth things over because people feeling like a sense of agency over what's going on. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. It's the the rendered passive of hunters and farmers in this situation where before they could at least sort of defend themselves. There was quite quite a, a generous policy in terms of you could you could hunt the wolf and and kind of uh, defend your own interests. But there's no such thing in, in, for example, the Pyrenees and in many parts of Europe. It's extremely difficult to get those exemptions where, okay, I'd have to catch the wolf in the actual act of predating on my sheep. It would have to be within this uh, range of the sheep. It would have to have done this and that, and I would have to have scared it away first, like attempted those things. And maybe if you can really approximate all of those criteria, you can in Sweden and Scandinavia, for instance, get something called like you know the allowance paragraph where you can we can shoot the wolf, right? Uh, but that's not something that actually happens a lot in practice. And in many parts of Europe, as you said, there is there is no such thing at all. You can't even haze the wolf. You can't like scare it and try and repel it because that's like considered against the habitat's directive. I think in those situations, it's just become like what what can we do? You know, it's it's the thing you you look after your your land and your sheep, and that's part of your identity. But now you can no longer do that to a, a satisfactory level, and it must affect your identity a lot. So now, let's go back to Bruno and ask him how the procedure to scare and ultimately kill a problem wolf looks from his perspective. At the first attack, uh, a farmer or breeder like Bruno can go bankrupt because if he kills himself, the wolf, which is not allowed, he will have a fee of 150,000 euros because the animal is protected. The other problem and possibility to go bankrupt for a farmer like Bruno is that at the first attack, he will be refunded of the animals killed, but only of 25% of their value, only of 25%. And he won't be refunded for the abortions and stop of the milk production, so there will be no breeding possibilities for the young and no possibility to produce uh, cheese also. So this is another possibility for a farmer who is attacked to go bankrupt. So the solution is to call for protection. But first of all, you have to prove that you have all the protection means uh, installed in your farm. Because if you don't have the fences, the protection dogs, you won't be uh, able to have the help of the state on that level. Uh, the first step is to prove that you have all these protection means installed. Then you call for uh, hunters for warning shots. If this is not enough, there is a second step where you call for an association of, uh, which is a specialty of France. We call them Lieutenant de Louveterie. That was created by Charlemagne in the ancient time, in the Middle Ages, uh, to protect the population for the uh, from the attack of the wolves and we still have these volunteers but they have to be approved and officially mandated 
by the state to go and help the farmers. With all these uh, steps till the killing or shooting at a wolf, it's obvious that European states prefer to see the increase of wolf population than the protection of the farmers. Now let's go back to Erika for the moment, as I wanted to know more about the implementation of Habitats Directive and how that impacts people on the ground. Is this interpretation of the Habitats Directive that is happening on the state level, or is it like in general, the Habitats Directive says like, no, you can't scare the bear or scare off the wolf, which just on the face of it sounds crazy. Yeah, and I don't know how often it's met in real life, like... Do people actually try and scare away these large carnivores anyway? Could be. Uh, basically, you know, it depends on where, where, which annex the wolf is in, in the Habitats Directive. Like some countries have gotten away with placing it in a, in a different category, like Spain and Lithuania. So there are slightly more allowances for wolves in some parts there. Uh, but for the most of us, no, it's pretty hardcore strict protection, right? And... The only, so some of the countries that have gone a little bit rogue in terms of scheduling these license calls, these annual outtakes of wolf population, that is the Nordic countries, right? It's it's Finland and it's Sweden. And we are not supposed to do those things. So we've been brought to European Court of Justice for this transgression. So I think the, the, the signal from the EU is definitely like strict protection. But then, well, what happens on, on the ground is maybe another story. And do you think that overall for, you know, minimizing or managing conflict, because this is like uh, this, this saying that I said many times on the podcast that cons- conservation is managing conflict. Do you think that it's it's better to have like an ongoing arrangement for, you know, killing or, or you know, other actions that people can take on the ongoing basis or the 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 model that you mentioned in the in Sweden or Norway but like right we're doing wolf call and now it because what i feel is where where there are those those mechanisms in place all the time they're kind of like a, they're there and they're um that might sound bad but they're kind of like under the radar while when we're doing like a wolf call then everybody goes like oh my god they're going to kill all the wolves and it gets like a unnecessary publicity while this is you know perhaps necessary from the perspective of managing conflict and you know managing both wildlife and and human activities that's such a that's such a hot topic now like what in what format if any should we have outtakes for wolf populations right and i think there are generally three ways that we would see outtakes of wolf populations and one of them is this annual quota thing you know once a year a set amount it's very organized and it's very easy for for the media and everyone else looking in to criticize, of course, because it's so publicized, it's so uh, so state-sanctioned in a way. The, the second option is those derogation-based calls where you just take out one problem wolf or even a whole pack if there's a, a real issue of like livestock predation in those. So those are the more surgical strikes of particular wolves in the way that the annual call is not. Um, and those are the two kind of up and up legal approaches. And then the third approach is if you have no formal wolf call, no legal, rep, uh, no legal, uh, well, no legal options at all, then you will start to see illegal outtakes of the wolf population, uh, which is definitely widespread in across Europe, even here where I am in Sweden, but definitely like Southern Europe where they don't even 
have any recourse to legal legal calls. So I think um, you need to look at kind of what relationships do you want to have with the wolf? Is it something that is huntable game species like every everything else? Or is it more of an exemption species that in some cases could be um, could be called? Or is it just strictly protected it in the in the public discourse, but on the down low in the countryside, you do the kind of informal management that you've been denied by the state and you take the law into your own hands and you poach the wolf. And it's not clear, I suppose, that if we have one or the other, like if we have annual wolf calls and derogation calls, that uh, you would see less of illegal hunting. I personally think, yes, some, you would you would probably see less of, of, of yeah, of the widespread poaching that occurs. But on the other hand, you know, it might all might always be some sort of criminal element there that isn't really responsive to the policy. Is it like long overdue uh, to mitigate the conflict with with wolves or we could do away without moving them to different annexes or, or changing the, the status? I feel that, you know, it's been brewing for a while, you know, dissatisfaction with the, the status of the wolf and... Above all, I think it's not really, although you do these fitness checks of the, the habitat's directive every so often, uh, they usually just end up with nothing. Like, it's fine. You know, we don't need a, a, a big shift. But now we've really seen that, well, wolf populations have recovered substantially in Europe. It's maybe time that legislation reflects that a bit more. So I think a lot of the stuff about wolf and wolf policy and protection, it came out of this crisis narrative, which is totally necessary back then. There were very few wolves. They needed to recover. And so the kind of whole rationale of those legal instruments and those organizations that fight for wolves was the crisis endangered or at least uh, threatened status of the wolves. So today, they're still in that sort of path-dependent way of arguing and thinking. But it doesn't really work, I suppose, when you have majorly re recovering wolf populations now. So really starting to see the the tension there of, of catching up. Okay, now before we summarize and try to predict the future of the wolves in the EU, there is a one more question that I just couldn't not to ask. Are wolves uh, posing any danger to humans? There was like part of the narrative as well. This has been one of the huge kind of controversies um, for the last um, on decades. And... I guess it's kind of quite important just to view this a bit in a historical context that if you're kind of spooling back to the 60s and 70s, much there were many fewer wolves than there are today. So experience kind of was low and science kind of was low. And the early image of wolf biology and ecology and danger emerged from North America. And with the knowledge that they had in the 1970s, in, in North America, that they, they had really little evidence of wolves being a danger to other people. Since then, um, like the last kind of 50 years, as we've accumulated more data from more countries and as wolf kind of populations have expanded, certainly our view of the danger posed by wolves has changed, right? There are situations where wolves have killed people. It's, it's no doubt about that, you know. Most of these can probably be attributed to rabies, which means when you start looking in countries which actually 
have rabies, like in the Caucasus or Central Asia, parts of the Middle East, and so on, you find very large numbers, well, not, but you do find, say, significant numbers of people over the years who have been killed by wolves who have rabies. Okay, sorry, I, I need to ask that question. Were they killed by the wolves with rabies on the spot, torn apart, or were they killed in terms they were bitten and then they died, you know, a week later? Both. Um, that some wolves who acquire rabies seem to acquire a fairly extreme form of the furious type of rabies. So you can read accounts um, in modern-day medical or veterinary literature or historical sources going back over centuries. Don't really know, describe a wolf um, rushing into a village or something and maybe um, biting people. No, and it, they can bite tens of people in, in attacks, plus, you know, any dogs and cats and cows and sheep in a way. And in some cases, people die outright from the injuries. Um, and other cases, they may die later if they do not have access to a vaccination, to post exposure vaccination. So you have kind of both accounts. And this kind of matching, I think, of the modern day accounts and the historical accounts is really interesting because I think it it gives a little insight into where our kind of cultural fear of the bulls has actually come from. You know, so that certainly is an issue. But on top of the rabies cases, there certainly have been cases where wolves have bitten and in some exceptionally rare cases kill people without rabies being involved, right? And like these cases are, you know, scattered across decades, right? You know, you find one or two here and some there and some here. So this is not like a widespread or normal thing, but it does happen in some situations. So it's a bit like bears. Everyone understands that a bear is a large predator and that bears can be dangerous. Right? There's no dispute about you know, the fact that bears occasionally kill people. Wolves do fit into that category. They are large predators, and they can very exceptionally kill people. Luckily, it's much rarer than, say, bear attacks. You know, and some of the process behind it might be slightly different. But we do have to admit that there are specific situations where a wolf can be dangerous to people. But in a way, what more would you expect? They are a large predator with teeth, you know, and um, and I think like any large animal, we have to accept that they can in some situations can be dangerous. Like you have people who are killed by wild boar, you know, you know. So, yeah. So in a way, it would also have been more surprising if they hadn't posed a threat to people under some situations. So that we shouldn't be surprised by it. Um, and I think it sort of, I think it helps kind of quite a lot to build a, um, a common understanding of the consequence of wolves to make the admission that yes, there are situations when large animals can be unfortunately dangerous. So where we are right now with the wolf population and, and, you know, calls for increased or facilitated management is the if if we not take if those steps are not taken, is it in danger that these cases will go up and there are gonna be more cases of people being killed or harmed by wolves? Or are the numbers are so low in in grand scheme of things that 
you know, that danger is within the, you know, statistical error and it's shouldn't well, be part of it. I would say like the risks of wolf attacks on people are so low that this is not something that you can quantify, you know, right? It, it's sort of, it, it's in this sort of, you know, realm of, you know, what are the risks of somebody being killed by a meteorite or something falling out of space, right? Now, I'm quite sure it happens, right, you know, but you can't put a number on it. So it, it doesn't mean the risk does not need to be, be taken seriously. It does, and the fear needs to be taken seriously. But simply with dealing with, you know, anecdotal cases spread across the entire global distribution of Earth. And it, we might be dealing with one or two cases globally per year, uh, you know. So it, it happens, yes, but you, you, you cannot quantify this. So now let's try to predict what might happen if the conservation status of wolves is indeed downgraded and they are moved from Annex 4 to Annex 5. So what would happen if the European Commission decide to downgrade the conservation status of, of wolves? Is there a is there a risk that they the 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 loosening controls would see some of the populations, um, you know, I don't want to say decimated, but reduced to numbers where those wolves won't be able to uh, play their role in the ecosystem, right? Because at the end of the day, we talking about biodiversity and we are talking about having wolves in a healthy ecosystem rather than like, oh look, there's a wolf. Um, so is is the is the risk that something like that will happen, and maybe following from that, what would be from from your perspective or from hunting perspective, best outcome of this review? Yeah, the best outcome would be that they move towards a procedure to look at amending the annexes, um, and that's for certain populations that are in favorable status that could move from annex four to five, and. There's widespread confusion around this because you have the same legal conservation requirement to achieve and maintain favorable conservation status. But Annex 5, in a number of contexts, is clearly a more appropriate legal status for um, certain populations of large carnivores to be in. So, you know, we frequently say it's downlisting and that will open the door for, you know, whole scale uh, zoning or, or, removal through shooting or other methods. That's not the case because that same legal requirement is there like an Annex 4. It's just think of it as a different category that you can have management, but it's not going to result in the types of problems we have with Annex 4 at the moment. And I think we have to think back when the Habitats Directive was drafted and you look at the status of the wolf back then, both Annex 2, 4, and 5, these were four you know, species that were endangered, vulnerable, rare, or endemic. Uh, if you were to publish the Habitats Directive today, you know, the wolf certainly wouldn't be in Annex 4 at the scale that it's at uh, at, at the moment. Um, some could even argue ab about about the listing of, 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 of the wolf at all, but okay, that's, that's, that's a different debate. But it, it, it would be very different. And I think, you know, our approach is that you can have management compatible with the conservation of the wolf. I mean, that's a fact. And we've had this in a number of countries. You know, I mentioned some of these countries, but these systems broke due to politics 
in many cases it was it was more of a green ideology um and it's just un- it's unfortunate in a way that you know the more wolves we have the stricter the system is the more debate we have the more polarization we have and the more challenges we have when it comes to actually finding solutions so you know we're fully in favor of and that that's our position you can find it on the web, web on our website you really support the conservation of 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 the wolf but at the moment annex 4 is creating a wide range of problems um and and that's why we feel the conservation um obligation from a legal perspective remains the same in 5 but for some populations it's in 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 some countries it's going to be much more helpful to have it in annex 5 and it's going to reduce conflict uh, around that and we cannot really see where the debate on flexibility is going to go at the moment, taking into account the Commission's perspective. And we're really, you know, we're really interested in in looking for solutions. We've been engaged for a, a very long time uh, on this debate with our members. And from the perspective of hunters, you know, you can have different conflicts depending on different uh, parts of Europe. They can be conflicts with hunting dogs. Okay, game management can become harder. It can be difficult for someone that's been, you know, really supporting the return of the mouflon for decades, and 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 that has to, in in a way, almost disappear now with the presence of the wolf. Um, you know, we're engaged in a project now, in a life wild wolf project, where we're we're looking at giving more information about what to do, what protocols can you have in place, um, how can you make life less stressful. I mean, so we're we're grateful to be involved in this project. Obviously, I learned that not everyone is sharing that view, as I ask the same question to Ariel Brunner. Uh, if the EU decide to downgrade the conservation status of wolves, what that would mean for ecology, for wolves, and what that would mean politically? Well, it means that in some places where the wolf haters are in government, we will see a very swift massacre of wolves. Um then depending on how badly it would go, it would mean either that wolves are being wiped out from the region with all the ecolo- ecological damage uh, that comes from that, or we will see just some wolves being shoot, shot, um, which means uh, the destruction of the pack structures and a lot more lonely wolves that are probably going to do more damage. Politically, I think that there is a, a fundamental problem there in our relationship with nature. Uh, our relationship with nature is broken. It's coming back to bite us. And if we want to save ourselves, we need to start finding ways to live with the ecosystem and not against the ecosystem. Because if we keep trying to live against the ecosystem, eventually the ecosystem will win. And finally, for the last time, let's go back again to Professor John Linnell with a similar question. Do you think it's saying that, okay, we need to control the wolves, we need to kill them more easily? It, it, does it strike you as like as a kind of like a lazy solution, which we didn't explore other ways, uh, like fencing, like guarding dogs, like other stuff first? Or is it, you know, it's most practical because the bullet costs two euro and upgrading fence to electric fence costs thousands of euro what's the you know ecologist biologist view on this the biological take on this is that if 
you have a conflict with wolves and livestock. Um, shooting a wolf, it, it may have a very short-term effect, right? Especially if you have, say, one wolf who maybe has learned how to circumvent your protection measures. And there are rules like that. There are some rules who work out how to deal with guarding dogs, how to jump fences, you know. But as you said before, wolves do have this incredible growth rate, right? You know, that's sort of they're able to breed, you know, and there is a, a pack out there. There are floating individuals who are not part of any pack out there. So whenever you shoot wolves, they're going to be replaced incredibly quickly. And especially if the outcut, if the obligation to maintain favorable conservation status is the same, whatever appendix can, can lay you on, you're never going to shoot your way out of having wolves. Like, wolves are here to stay, right? You know, legally, ecologically, socially, they are here to stay. So shooting may, well, it does have a role in livestock protection in the same way that saying paying compensation does. But the only way to have a long-term kind of issue here is going to be to make those adaptations in livestock at uh, production, right? Because maybe if a, if, if a wolf pack turns up in a place where you aren't adapted, okay, then sure, maybe shooting buys you time, right? But ultimately speaking, you're going to have to move to livestock protection or some form, some way, however complicated or expensive it may be. That is really the only way out of this. You know, it's like, say, if you're dealing with, say, food safety, you know, um, you don't really fix that by killing the viruses, you know, in a way, right? You do that by having hygiene, you know? And so many things are like having cars, you have seat belts and airbags, right? You, you take protection measures, right? You know, you can't just say we don't want any drunk drivers on the road, you know? It's great to have that, but you need other things. So I think in many cases, it's much easier or in the long term for people to adapt their practices rather than asking wildlife to adapt its practices or to simply shooting anything that gets in the way. But it's not to trivialize so how difficult that adaptation can be, right? This can, in some cases, mean totally changing systems on their heads. And with the current economic constraints that agriculture is under, this is far from being trivial. So, but we have to think long-term. And shooting, you know, yes, Target shooting will always be a part of that that livestock prediction. Um, it may buy time in, in some places, but it can never be the only solution as long as you are going to have wolves on the landscape. And I want to close off with one thought from Ariel Bruner that really kind of encapsulates my thoughts about the coexistence with the uh, somewhat dangerous animals. Did we become soft and are just whining about everything? I think that uh, a really, really uh, important uh, thing to think about is what signal Europe is sending to the rest of the world. Because uh, I find a lot of very disturbing situations in which the same people who think that, uh, you know, an extremely rich uh, society like ours cannot live with a small and not very harmful predator like wolf, 
but think that uh, much poorer people should be living rubbing shoulders with uh, tigers and lions and elephants and jaguars. Um, we should really think about what is that saying about us as Europeans. And we should also think about what message are we sending to the rest of the world. Um, if we cannot live in peace with wolves, it's really hard to see how uh, people in other parts of the world can live with you know, much more problematic biodiversity. Well, you heard it all, really. Um, one thing that scientists told me off record was that there is a reluctance in scientific community as they are afraid of what might happen. On one hand, downlisting won't solve the problem. On the other hand, social conflict might be diffused or at least wolves will be taken off that culture war context, which might be beneficial in the end as it will diffuse the whole dragging the wolves into the politics. Now, what is my opinion on this? And I hope that by now you notice that I didn't try to sway you listeners or viewers into either way. Um, you're intelligent people. You are well capable of coming up to your own uh, conclusions by listening to all those voices. My view is that if everything happened as it is on the paper, as it is meant to be on the paper, everything will be fine. There was no problem. However, things seldom happen as they meant on paper. And that's where it might be a problem. I personally would like to see a healthy population of wolves across the Europe. I would love to be able to bump into them while in the woods, or at least into signs of their presence while in the woods. Also, as a hunter, I would like to be able to go on a wolf hunt, but not in a casual manner. I would like it to be a big deal. So yeah, let me know what are your thoughts after listening to this program about the issue and about the new format of the show. As I mentioned, uh, it was not my intention to sway you either way. I think that you might already come to your own conclusions by now. And even if you didn't, at least you can appreciate the complexity of the problem that is hidden behind the clickbait headlines. And I'm just going to leave you with a reminder that if you would like to hear the full versions of interviews with all the guests on this podcast, you need to go to the description of the show and register your interest. There's a link in, link in there. You're going to put your email address. And once those full version interviews will be out, I will notify you. They will not be made public ever. They will be only available to registered people. And this is how you register. Um, go to the description of the show, click on the link, put your email address, and you will be notified once they're out. So yeah, that's all for today. Thanks for listening and thanks for watching. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 